1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today.
0: Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Um, this is Von Cheer and today we have a, we have a special episode. Uh, it's a tradition. Uh, as always, after every major, we bring on Steve Flink, the writer. Uh, a great writer and a wonderful historian and uh, member of the Tennis Hall of Fame, International Tennis Hall of Fame, and he's written two books, uh, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited and The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. And so this is my conversation with Steve. Hello, Steve. Uh, great uh, fortnight wrapping, uh, wrapping up Wimbledon. Um, you were there for the last eight days. Uh, how, how was your experience overall?
1: It was terrific. It was great to be back because I hadn't been back since 2019, the epic Djokovic Djokovic Federer final. And then obviously there's no tournament in 2020. And last year I covered from home because there were too many restrictions, justifiable restrictions, by the way, but restrictions that would have made it made me question whether it was worth being on site last year. That was not the case this year. It was just like times of old and, and I enjoyed it immensely.
0: Terrific. So I guess, um, Let's start with the men's final since it's fresh in our mind. Um, Djokovic against uh, a surprise finalist and Nick Kyrgios. Um, how did how did you kind of see that match? I thought uh, it was a pretty good showing for for Nick. I mean, we you know many people were speculating how he would react to his first major final and how would he how would he f- play against Djokovic, in the matchup with the uh, you know potentially one of the best servers in the in the game against the greatest returner of all time in Novak. Um, and uh, I, I, think it, I think it delivered, and Nick actually performed pretty well.
1: Couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously, he had had the, the default from Nadal in the semifinals. So, you know, he hadn't played since Wednesday yet. So he had three days off, came back on Sunday. That was a long time for him to be dwelling <laughs> on this upcoming encounter. And therefore, it made his first set performance all the more remarkable. Because you would think that's where the nerves might have shown and he would have just come out there and ugh, been out of his match rhythm and out of his serving rhythm and just out of sorts playing in his first major final. like this. But that was not the case. And Djokovic just made one bad move that cost him the set. And that was going for a big second serve, a two-all break point down. He'd saved one break point already. Now he went for, I believe, 111 mile an hour second serve down the t and sent it into the net. I didn't think it was worth that gamble for him. Nobody ever asked him about it in the press conference because there were too many other things to talk about. But I felt that that was, he would have been much better off. Nick was not going to crush that return. Just get the second serve in as deep as possible. So that cost Djokovic the first set. Otherwise he was holding quite easily. Nick was serving magnificently. And then finally at 5-4 in that first set, Novak did get to deuce, you know he made a he he made an impression there in that game, and Nick was a bit nervous, made a few bad plays, a bad servant volley and, uh, that backfired and but he got through it and held on with an ace and that was commendable for Nick to tuck away that first set and be two sets away from his first Wimbledon title, but then of course, the complexion changed quite dramatically at the start of the second set
0: uh just to add a little bit on what you were saying in the first set um i was <clears throat> i was also looking forward to seeing how the baseline exchanges would play out once yeah. the once Djokovic got the return back in place so I was interested in sort of the cross court back end to back end exchanges because Nick obviously he has a you know a short take back on the back end it stays very low it's very flat it sort of skids through the grass and um you know so I was curious to see how that would how that would match up and Nick was actually doing quite a good job of getting it quite low and forcing Djokovic to dig out some uncomfortable uncomfortable backhands and then you know, actually staying with him in the long rallies as well, which, uh, you know, is, hasn't uh, hasn't always been the case for Nick, but he seemed really focused and dialed in. And uh, obviously it, it helped the way he was serving and Djokovic didn't really have a great read on his serve, but that all changed, you yeah. know, in the second set. Oh, I,
1: I agree with all of that. I was surprised by his consistency from the backcourt, Nick's consistency, that is, by uh-huh. his patience. I only have a slight disagreement. I feel that with the back and he has the short backswing and it can be biting. I didn't think it was terribly biting necessarily, but it did, did stay. low. that's where I totally agree with you. And that, and so Djokovic was dealing with some low, no pace balls. That That's not fun for him. He'd rather have some pace coming at him. And then Nick was very disciplined off his forehand in the first set. Really, really for most of the match, he didn't go for reckless winners. You know, he hit it hard and heavy, but, He measured it pretty well, so you're right. The first, the baseline uh, prowess of of Kyrgios in the first set was one of the standout features. In addition to his blockbuster serving, so those were the two things that earned him the set. And Novak was sort of coming to terms with that and uh, discovering what he was going to have to do in the second set to turn this. And I think really what he did, Vans, was. I mean, a lot was made about that one-all game in the second set. It was very important because he's a 30-all. He doesn't want to go down a break. He wins a 23-stroke rally by really probing both sides, moving Nick side to side, eventually extracting an error off Nick's backhand. And then the next point was another long rally that Novak ended with a backhand cross-court drop shot winner. And that hold was so big that I think it it really boosted Djokovic's morale and carried him right through the next game when he broke at love. So I feel like those two games changed that match uh, significantly. And then, of course, we got to that last game of the second set. Novak trying to serve it out. He'd had 5-2. Nick had a nice hold and it's 5-3. Love 40 on Novak's serve. And I thought he was very poised at that point. He knew how important that game was. He doesn't want to let Nick back on serve and eventually have that set potentially settled in a tie break which could be a roll of the dice at the, that stage, a lot of pressure on him. And he just took it point by point very nicely. Didn't try to do too much with the first serve, sliced it to Nick's forehand a couple of times. The next thing you know, he's back to deuce. Nick gets a fourth break point and that Novak hit a terrific. He played that point really well and hit, you didn't think he was going to try it, but he was moving forward into the court, but a little bit into the alley and he hit it back and dropped down the line that Nick could not handle. And uh, mm. that was that was a critical hold. I really thought. Uh, what did you yeah. think about that set?
0: Yeah, I thought I thought that was the standout game. Um, and, uh, you highlighted it perfectly. The one all game, those two long points, followed by the backhand uh, drop shot cross court for two one, and then the break at love. He really did such a good job in that game, reading Nick serve and getting such deep returns back, and making Nick sort of half volley on his forehand. A lot of yeah. uh, you know just right at his feet. And then at five three, I thought he did. Uh, he, you know, he hit his spots perfectly. I mean, he didn't do too much with the serves, but no, he know no. he knows that's the play against Kyrgios because uh, if you give him a sort of a kick second serve on the backhand, he can really sort of attack it and take it early. But uh, on his forehand, he doesn't like that return as much. He doesn't like the forehand return and the body. Um, when you serve at his body, he gets kind of jammed. So that was a perfect play. And then the drop shot, his drop shot throughout the match, I thought was was um was just spot on. Like his feel on that shot, the when to go after it. Um, and it was just uh, his court sense throughout the rest of the, the match was was just perfect.
1: Like, yeah, I thought also a couple of those first serves <laughs> that hit in the 5 3 game when they, they were in the range of 115. He can go a little bigger than that, but he wisely just wanted to get the spin on it, slice it, force Nick to come up with something on his forehand return, which Nick was unable to do. A couple of errant returns there. That was that was a very impressive game at a critical mm-hmm. juncture of the match for Djokovic, and then I thought he was going to break Nick at the start of the third. He had a couple of break points, almost had him there. The momentum was, was with him decidedly. But again, that was another example of Nick's competitiveness on the day and his poise for the most part, despite these crazy outbursts in between points with his camp. Once the point began back down on the court, he was inside himself again. That, that impressed me. I, I, a lot of times that's not the case. If he's talking to his honorage, then it's carrying over into his play. But in this case, you know, that was a very good hold at the start of the third to keep Djokovic from really rolling along on, uh, after taking the second set. And then we obviously we eventually got to four all. And But by that time, I thought Djokovic had totally found his range from the baseline bunch. It, it, no longer was Nick going to be winning the long rallies. That was gone. And, and Novak was probing left and right. His depth was better. He just was very confident and uh, rhythmic from the baseline and uh, which is hard to do on that court and hard to do against Nick. But he had that. And here's where I one of the few times I've ever disagreed with Novak Djokovic in one of his sort of post-match assessments. But he said in several interviews, Nick gifted me that four all game from 40 love. I, I don't agree because I look back on those points. And I say, OK, so Nick should put away the forehand volley at 40 love. But it's a, a little bit of an awkward high forehand volley. he had served in volley. To, and that was his second one. And sure, he should have probably put it away. But Novak tracked it and passed him down the line. Nothing took nothing that awful on Nick's part there. And the next point, Djokovic, it's a very good pass right at Nick's feet that was just unmanageable. And hmm. then... Uh, Third one, you know, he, Djokovic, a deep return down the middle. It set up a forehand, forehand inside in winner. Uh, we had Nick trapped. So I would say that was some pretty good work from Novak to get back to Deuce to rattle Nick, who then double faults and then, hit, then makes a pretty routine backhand error off a, a backhand return from Novak that was semi deep, but not that deep. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think it was a combination of things. Yes, Nick, Definitely lost his grip a bit, but Novak played it point by point methodically and well. And I think he did his part to earn the break. The total gift. What What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I do think he he definitely earned it. Uh, he, you know, he did very well to get, to get to deuce. I, I did kind of think maybe on one of those volleys, it was a tough ask, obviously, yeah. but Nick is a good volleyer. And maybe, you know, with his soft hands, he could have, he could have maybe stuck one of them out, but I, I agree with you. Like the passing shots were, were were terrific. the the one at uh, forty fifteen, I believe, was like right oh, at his feet. So it was oh, it was tough to expect it. him to dig that out in that situation. And then and then, and then the, the double fault, I I think, was definitely probed by the by the um, by the previous point. Yeah, oh <laughs> no, the, and
1: then, and that was Djokovic at his best because he actually didn't hit that inside in forehand that hard, <laughs> but it was deadly accurate inside the sideline. And Nick was. Completely frozen near the middle of the court and, and surprised by the direction of the shot. So, you it, it, it know, whatever your anybody's point of view is, it was a clutch break for Novak, obviously. And then he serves right. it out. And suddenly, just like that, he's two sets to one up. But I felt like he had outplayed Nick in that set. He made it sound like he thought it was like even Steven. I don't think so. I, I I felt like Novak was giving it, it was, the, it was the break points in the first game. There was another deuce game. He seemed to be on him almost every service game. And then ironically, he wins the one that it looks like he's going to lose. While you go back to the first game of the set and it looked like it was going to break. So I, I felt like it was a set that was, that belonged in his column in the end.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that he undersold himself a little bit there. Maybe it's just sort of, it happened so quickly, like from 40 Love. To the end of the game, and then obviously with all the chirping from from Nick to his box and the just how quickly he plays in between points, maybe just it it sort of felt like from Deuce he he won the game so super quick just because of the double fault and then the the backhand in the net, which uh, you know in that time I didn't feel like Nick showed any patience. He sort of just no, he he wasn't.
1: No, he was for a winner
0: there, and just
1: Uh, yeah, he did. Although he wasn't even hitting it that hard, he was a little. I thought he was a bit confused. You know, he and 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 definitely. Thinking about the score, and instead of just focusing on the in, on the point itself. But here's, here's that's
0: what I think. feel like is a notice, noticeable difference between the two players because I feel like Novak sort of played this match point for point, and he he sort of treated every point like it was the same. Whereas Nick, I feel like he was playing the score a lot more.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that, and that was that was there was a sort of a singular intense focus from Novak. I think he made up his mind. He knew when he joked ahead of the match that there were going to be some fireworks. Uh-huh. Uh, I think he then went back and said to himself, but they better not be from me because he he realized he was much better off in this. There are times when he bent when it's, it's worth it to him against in, against certain players at yeah. particular times to just let it out. Not, not when he's playing Nick, he was much better off to let Nick be the one to always be, you know, <laughs> Be the emotional one erupting here and there and quite frequently and Novak just kept his mind completely focused on 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 winning the match and and was exceedingly calm to his benefit to his definite benefit but i I have yeah. to say this the fourth set to me was very impressive from Nick's end because I was sitting with Chuck Culpepper of the Washington post and he and he he had speculated with me uh, uh, as the third set was ending, Did did we think that perhaps Novak might make a real move in the fourth, you know, that that Nick would be a bit disconsolate. And, but that was not the case. Nick had, you know, perhaps his best, most consistent serving set. You could compare it probably comparable to the first set, but, but never, but it never even pushed to deuce. Neither player was even pushed to deuce. Novak did a terrific job serving from behind all through that set. And he was two points from losing the set at 30, all they were a bit shaky in the five, six game, but he just steadied himself beautifully to get into that tiebreak, And then you had that sense that this was going to be one of those Djokovic tie breaks where nothing was going to be, and Nick was going to get no presence. Uh, Novak was going to make, he made the one unforced error when he was serving a two love that at the time I thought might be costly, but Nick had started the breaker with that double fault down the T going for a big second serve. And Novak, I thought maybe he'd really, distance himself, but that was a, an opportunity you thought possibly for Nick to get the mini break back, be serving at one, two. And that, that stage impressed me a lot because Novak mm-hmm. made a couple of very good, one really good first serve return that eventually led to him going up three, one on an error from Nick off the forehand. And then a good return off a tough first serve in at, on the three, one point. And Nick tried to do too much to angling his backhand cross court and, and sending it wide. So Those two points, if, you know, if someone had told Novak he's going to get two first serves in here, do you think you can get either one? He'd say, I hope so. He got both. And I think then he was in the driver's seat. And I thought he was very, very disciplined, stretching it from 4-1 to 6-1. And then Nick did a nice job to win a couple of points on his serve and make Novak serve it it out at 6-3. But that's just what Djokovic did. One of his typical sort of strategic points, moving Nick around depth. Great depth, great control, until he finally got the short ball and came in off his forehand and extracted that backhand uh, passing shot error from Nick. So I just thought it was a first-class match. <coughs> Excuse me, Bunch. I would rate it maybe slightly higher than the Berrettini final a year ago. No, oh, totally mind.
0: agree. Totally. Yeah. Agree.
1: Yeah. Start to finish, I think it was a better match. And I think that Nick, despite all of his histrionics, gave a good account of himself, very good account, but he also he also brought out the best in Djokovic. Now it was interesting, Vonch to, listening to some of the BBC comments after the match, and some of the BBC commentators thought that this was far and away Novak's best match. I'm not sure it was. I thought he played incredibly well the last three sets against Sinner. Uh, I, I, I think the Sinner match was certainly on the on the on that level. The last three sets and. That he was at a pretty high level most of the tournament, despite dropping six sets in the seven matches. Yeah. Uh, I felt like you know, all told, you know, he 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 had a reason to be confident going in there. And you could say that he peaked for the final, but I thought he was at a at a good high level across the whole fortnight.
0: Yeah, that was my feeling as well. The the last three sets against Sinner for me were just yeah. I mean, he exactly. was giving away absolutely nothing. It was like lockdown mode.
1: Lockdown. Plus- but but very authoritative, very authoritative, very aggressive, you know, and serving yeah. extremely well those last three sets.
0: Oof, yeah,
1: it was, it, Like a switch went off, because the strange thing about the Sinner match, Vance, was <laughs> that Novak, I thought, should have won the first set. He was 4-1 and had a break point for 5-1. Sinner hit a very good first serve to save it. And then Djokovic played one of his worst games at 4-2. Mm-hmm. A couple of drop drop shot, drop shot areas. It just was a disastrous game for him. Right. And that was a giveaway game in a way because he really right. didn't make earn no, any of those points.
0: Yep, you're and right. I, two double faults and two drop shots. Double,
1: yeah, just doubles and two drop shots. It was crazy. And mm-hmm. uh, then he ends up losing the set seven five and losing the second set six two. And it had it. It, it reminded me oddly of a, a totally different, lesser caliber player, another mm-hmm. Italian uh, Musetti, at yeah. the uh, last year where Novak should have won the first set there had ample opportunities had a big lead in the tiebreak and he didn't put musetti away and the next thing you know he's been crushed in the second set and he's got himself in a two set deficit and i thought this this was strangely reminiscent of that mm-hmm. but no and once in same similarity again he goes to take the bathroom break after the second set but i thought the way that he reset at the start of the third and the kind of tennis that he produced there those actually might have been uh, those might have been his three best sets of the tournament
0: Yeah. Yeah. In my mind, those were the, those were the three best. And uh, definitely the way he was able to flick that switch, like you said, and just, I didn't think Sinner played badly in those last three sets. No. uh, Like at all. So it was. Totally
1: agree. Totally agree. That's what made it so remarkable to me is that Sinner did not play badly, but he couldn't Mm -hmm. believe what was being thrown at him. He was astounded by the quality of the improved quality of Novak's returns. And then just the, the ground stroke, execution and the way he orchestrated those points the last three sets was really pretty pretty inspiring stuff and then more surprising to me Vance was the semifinal bit surprised that he was so nervous in the first set Djokovic because he came out and lost his serve against Cam Norrie okay fair enough tight at the beginning but you break right back hold for 2-1 then he made that great tweener lob in, in the next game and you thought okay he's relaxed now but he wasn't because from that point at two one, he didn't win another game that set. That's not like him. Uh, and yet, even there, again, similar to Sinner, he didn't play quite as well. But it was still really high level stuff. Once he turns it in the second set, goes up five three with the break against Nori. You know, then there was just no stopping him. And, and Nori did very well to keep the fourth set as close as he did to only one break because Novak was. Had one other break game. Could have gone up four-one in a second break. Had four break points. It was really he played really well that game. But Norrie somehow fended him off and stayed in there to the end. But that one was that one was one I had the feeling Vansky he just kind of wanted to get it done, get it over with. You know he it, it was it was a tricky match to play. It's a British player on the center court. The app they weren't they weren't uh, his they weren't at that frenzied level of, say, an Andy Murray crowd that he had dealt with back in the 2013 <laughs> final, but they still were obviously uh, solidly behind Nori. And then toward the end, there were some hecklers in the stands and kind of getting on Novak's nerves a bit as he tried to serve the match out, but he got through that. And I felt like that was sort of the, the way he felt that day was that, you know, he just wanted to he wanted to get it over with and 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 start thinking about the final. It, it was you know I, he was better against Sinner and Kyrgios than he was against Nori in many ways.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I was also a little bit surprised at how aggressive Nori was playing in that match um, after he won the first set. I thought he was really going after it and you know trying to finish points and wasn't getting the finishes he was looking for. But I was surprised he didn't try and play a little bit more steady from the back of the court and maybe perhaps forced Djokovic into some of those longer exchanges. Particularly yeah. I, his forehand.
1: I think he didn't trust himself in the longer rallies. You're right. Because you think of Nori, we think of him in most of his matches and that's how he does it. Mm-hmm. He puts up kind of a brick wall off that back end. You feel like he could steer it cross court all day long, you know, and he measures his forehand and he doesn't miss. Yeah. But I think he felt that Novak was too good at that game for him. Uh, mm. And, and I, it made him press. Yeah. And, it, and that's essentially what happened. You're right. I, I didn't expect that kind of a game plan. But I, looking back, I understand why why he played that way.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, and then, you know, I was very impressed. I, I guess let's talk bigger picture with, uh, no, for Novak before we move on to Rafa. But, sure. uh, you know, it was, uh, it was there was a lot of pressure coming into this event for Djokovic, you know, because it's pretty unlikely right now that he'll play the U.S. Open and uh, we don't know what the situation in australia is you know most you know it's probably somewhat maybe likely that they'll you know forgo that 3 year ban and maybe we'll see him there but it's yeah he's going to given for sure so
1: yeah let me just jump in there for a second i i do think it's i would be really surprised if they didn't let that go they yeah. they know suffered this year i don't think they want another confrontation they proved their point <clears throat> this past year I agree. And so I think the people assuming that he won't be in Australia are wrong. I think the people like you just said who are assuming he won't be at the US Open are are probably right because mm-hmm. it's hard to see the policy changing so quickly now since we're already pushing into the middle of July that they would change it in time for him to come to the US Open toward the in the latter stages of August but very unlikely. But I think he's been very dignified about that in the sense mm-hmm. of not complaining, but just accepting that that's probably going to be the reality.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, it puts him back in pole position. He's one ahead of Roger now and, you know, just one behind Rafa. And, you know, this was very much a a much needed boost for him in terms of the, the overall race.
1: Yeah, I think he looked at it. It's well sized up bunch. I think he looked at it as sort of a must win situation, you know, and then once Rafa was out, well, either way. Whether he was gonna face Rafa or not, he felt like he had to, he had this was his turf, this was his tournament, he's going for his seventh title, he's going for his fourth in a row. And (laughs) I think he felt that it was one he could not let get away. And and you could feel it and hear it in his press conference after the semifinals. As he looked ahead to playing Nick, he just you could it was just so clear that he, when he talked about how, not knowing how many more opportunities were going to come his way, that he did not want this one to elude him. So he'll, he'll be very happy, even if he's not able to come to the Open, that he secured this prize. It was, it was a must-win for him. I think that's how he looked at it.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so looking at Rafa, um, you know, I think uh, looking at his performances throughout this whole uh, week before the abdominal tear happened, I didn't think he was playing at his peak level or, you know, like close to his very, it wasn't peak Rafa by any means, but it was, it was still a pretty good level. Uh, Once he got through the first two matches, you know, I got the feeling he started working his way into the tournament and the first two matches weren't really that surprising to me because he hadn't played on grass in three years. And, uh, you know, he definitely, he struggled many times in the first week, a lot of times at Wimbledon. And so I wasn't too surprised by that, but I did start to, uh, you know, sort of see uh, like I noticed the the um <clears throat> the tape on his ab- abdomen, I think in the fourth round against Botic. and then yeah, you, could, yeah. you, you, you could definitely see that there was something lingering there. And then in the Fritz match, clearly when he was serving, you know, at like a hundred miles per hour and sometimes even less, you could clearly see he was he was diminished and he was struggling a lot on his backhand as well. Like not you know when he had to rotate and hit topspin backhands, he resorted mostly to the backhand slice, which is a great play against Taylor Fritz. Yeah, but, it is. Uh,
1: it's a great play but I thought that Fritz if he'd been a bit more persistent in playing to the backhand slice that he could have he would have better off than, than going to his forehand but yeah those two not enough was made of your latter point I talked about it a lot but I didn't hear enough about it from others yes we saw the restriction on the serve we saw that he was having trouble breaking past say 102 miles an hour in the first serve for a long stretch but Having to go to that backhand slice as often as he did was not fun for him either. Hmm. Uh, I, I, listen, he wanted on discipline, willpower, experience, inspiration, memory, all those qualities. It, it You know, it kicked in and it enabled him. And then, of course, he just got off to a big start in the final tiebreak at the end in the fifth set. You know, he just bowled to a big lead and and eventually won it comfortably. But I'd say that uh, I'd agree <coughs> with yours. He was not playing that well through most yes Senego he managed to beat in straight sets he had a few moments along the way but never felt like he was in total command and part of it was the fact that he hadn't played on grass part of it is that it's not his best surface and yeah. he hasn't been there since 2010 and he's he's grown immeasurably as a hardcore player but I would say on the grass he's you know because he plays so little on it it just hasn't been his favorite surface by any means so we'll never know what might've happened had he been healthy and been able to play Nick and then potentially Djokovic. But I think, I think there was, there was always this, this sort of dicey aspect to it, Vonch because of the procedure he did before the tournament that just would enable him to deal with that foot problem and get through it. And therefore also no, no matches leading up to it. Just a couple of fishing matches, but no, no tournaments. Yeah. So, asking a lot of himself on the heels of the French where he'd had all the injections match after match. And uh, I, I never really liked his chances, but I was impressed with how he made his way, you know, his professionalism in marching through the draw. And then once he left the court against Fritz, though, bunch, I felt like I just couldn't see how he was going to go out and play Nick. I couldn't see how the news was going to be good enough that the tear, the tear was significant. And and I think he, as he said later, he knew from the practice session that he wasn't going to be able to serve. He wouldn't have been able to serve any any better than he did against Fritz, and yeah. that was not that was not going to work against Kyrios.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there were points in that match uh, where his his coaching team, uh, his dad, and some other people in his box were notioning him to you know retire and uh, to stop playing. I, so, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And he wasn't defiantly telling them, no, but I think it was his way of saying to them, look, I'm going to make this choice and I think I can get through this and sad for the tournament that he of course was in no condition to play. That's, I mean, but that Fritz was so close uh-huh. though, in, in, late in the fourth and fifth that uh, would have been nice for Taylor. If he could, if he could have pulled it off and then been out there playing a semifinal against that would have been in my view, quite competitive, quite tight could have gone down to the wire. We'll never know. But I think it's it obviously it's it's so rare that we don't a Wimbledon semifinal is not played. So that was a dry day because Djokovic makes his comeback against Nori. And that was it. We didn't have a, a second act. And that was that was too bad for the fans.
0: Yeah, I have to say it did surprise me that many people were especially on Twitter were, you know, suggesting that, you know, Taylor Fritz should be playing the semifinal. And oh, uh, that, be given that second chance, and I just thought that's ridiculous. You know, why oh, no, do, you
1: I, do that? Was, no, you have to earn your way in. You can't then put them back in as a lucky loser. And that's not how tennis works. But I also think it was unfair. Some people are speculating there were a couple of instances. Vance, back in the early seventies, and these are totally mm-hmm. different times. Tom Gorman at the Year End Masters in in seventy two, mm-hmm. and Stan Smith where he got to match point and. His back was terrible, and he went up and shook hands and gave Stan the match. And almost identical the next year in Boston at the same tournament, which was moving around in those years, John Newcomb landed badly after hitting an overhead. And he pulled something, hurt something in his leg, and he knew he was in no condition to play the final. So he defaulted against Tom Aku, who played Nastasi in the final. So those were magnanimous acts, to be sure. But also, in those days, Vance, they didn't have such a, so, as these sophisticated trainers around and these kind of tests that Rafa could take to see how big the tear was so I don't think it was fair that people kind of some of them people on television I think were speculating should he he should he have defaulted near the end of the fritz match mm-hmm. not 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 reasonable, not fair because he doesn't know what news he's going to get the next day all he can do is try to get through this match and I'm sure he felt very badly for the tournament that, that he couldn't. He was not fit to perform, but that wasn't something he could know for sure until the next day. And then what happens? Suppose Kyrgios had gone out in practice and broken his leg. I mean, anything is possible. So I think Nadal was just trying to give himself some chance to stay alive, but people should not have expected him to, to uh, just walk up to Taylor late, late yeah. in the fourth set and say, it's your match.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Just one other question I kind of had I wanted to wanted to ask you about, which is that um, you know we've seen now over several majors, um, Novak and Rafa, they just have something special when uh, even when they're not playing, when when they're physically, when their bodies are failing them, and they they just have so many tools, and they've worked on it many years, and they're they're such great at adapting and adding new things to their game, and just finding a way to tough it out and win. But um, at the same time, you know, you you definitely see some criticism for these next gen younger players uh, to be like, you know, this is their chance. Why are they not putting them? Why are they not putting these guys away? This is the second time, for example, that Fritz was in a situation where he was playing an injured Djokovic or Nadal. and He just couldn't find a way to get over the line. So should we be critical of him or should we be more complimentary of the all-time greats in Djokovic and Nadal? you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. So
1: that's I think I think more the latter, Von. More the latter. I would be somewhat critical of Taylor, not so much for the one with Novak in Australia. Uh-huh. I think there's too much he could have done in the fifth. He got outplayed, but here he got so close in the fourth and fifth. So I would be a little critical of him, but he wasn't going to win. The, in, in all candor, he wasn't going to win this tournament. Okay. He could have could have maybe made the final. Uh, I think the criticism is more probably, wouldn't you say, that the public is more critical of the likes of Zarev and Sitsipas and those guys who haven't been able to make the breakthrough yet. Team was able to do it, winning that U.S. Open over Zarev. But the other guys not making their breakthroughs, that's – that's not an invalid criticism, but I still say this is about enduring greatness and enduring consistency on the part of Djokovic and Nadal. This is really quite astounding, yeah. Because you don't normally have players. I mean, in the past we saw Sampras, Becker, all those guys, Edbert. They around thirty. They were they were. It was sort of ingrained in them, and and expected that when that thirty was sort of the bell was ringing and you better get ready to leave. And that's just how it was back then. So the players would m- mainly retire in their early 30s, or right around 30, Chang as well. And so the fact that these two guys are still so amb- incredibly ambitious and they have their historical quest in terms of the Grand Slam titles that keeps them going, so that makes them even more motivated. But it's just a great tribute to two guys who are 35 and 36 that they're still as great as they are
0: yeah.
1: and that they're fending off the <coughs> younger but I still say the time will come for the likes of Zarev and Tsitsipas and certainly for Carlos Alcaraz. We know we know where he's headed. I have no doubt when he starts picking up majors, he's going to get them in clusters in the years ahead. He's just growing into his talent. He's 19 now. He just needs a little more time. But I still think the other guys will make their mark too. But in the meantime, we should just appreciate the uh, the the just astounding uh, consistency and drive of, of these two great champions Djokovic and Nadal how, how do you feel about that by the way yeah I, I have
0: I've always in these sort of debates I've always leaned to the ladder like you were saying and you know it's just so incredible how they keep on and how they just keep on raising the bar and just you know even in their mid-30s and that's where I think actually Roger you know he sort of showed that you know you can play really well at 37 38 and you know you're I still distinctly remember Novak sort of uh Hinting at that in the um, post-match in their 2019 final, after he just won, I you know, did. and he, he really has a lot of faith in his body that he can he can play for another four or five years at least. So it's very uh, it's it's very commendable, actually, what these guys are doing. And you yeah, know, you know, for Novak to have won nine majors after the age of 30, and Nadal to oh, have won eight, it's, it's just it's just it crazy. is nine
1: nine out of 21. That's almost half, not quite half, which is pretty yeah. remarkable. <laughs> but you know what I noticed, Vanj? Looking at Djokovic, I I was sitting near the front of the press uh, interview room a couple of times near the end, watching him walk in. And he's just so incredibly streamlined thin. And I think that's also going to be one of the secrets to him carrying on for those four or possibly five years, whatever he decides that you just alluded to, is that he's decided in these latter stages of his career to be trimmer than ever. It doesn't seem to diminish his power but I think it's one of the reasons why he feels he won't get injured. There's definitely a purpose to it because he's, he's fanatical about keeping, keeping himself that thin. And I think for him, that's one of the secrets. Obviously, Rafa's build is different. He doesn't, he doesn't have the same kind of a diet. He doesn't do it that way. And, and he, But frankly, he is much more injury prone for the most part than Novak. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, it's still, <clears throat> it's still a listen. If anybody had ever told Rafa, at age 22, 23, you're going to be around at 36. You're going to win your 14th French Open. He would have laughed. He would not have believed it. Uh, Djokovic, I think, for a long time, hoped and believed and counted on being around now. But Rafa did not. And I think he's always going to be grateful, even if he never hit another ball, even if this foot injury did not resolve itself and he decided to retire later this year, which I think is highly unlikely. Mm -hmm. He would be exceedingly grateful for getting these years in his 30s and performing at these levels now, which earlier in his career, he would have thought was just inconceivable.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I have to say, just stylistically, I really enjoyed watching Djokovic and Hidal much, much more into their latter stages of their career like they are right now than I did in the earlier part of their career, which is you know, I guess many would disagree with me there, but I definitely,
1: I would totally agree. I
0: definitely think they're just better all around all court players now.
1: They are. No, they are. They're more craftsmen. They've they've learned so much about the game on a tactical level and they've skills. Djokovic's backhand slice, for instance, is far better than it was in his younger years. And, you know, he's much more confident about when to come in and and how to execute up there. And Raf is the same way. I mean, Raf is so much more aggressive on the faster courts now than he was when he was younger. So it's really commendable to see what they've done to diversify their games and add these elements. And it does make them more interesting. I, and I, and I, that's exactly what I found myself thinking about Djokovic in this tournament, how much more enjoyable it is to watch him perform. And not that it was electri- he wasn't electrifying when he was winning his first title at Wimbledon in 2011, but there's just something about how he plays now the thought that goes into it, the craft, the versatility. and, and the, he's cerebral. He's really cerebral. And, Navi- and and Rafa is in his way too, but I think Djokovic is particularly s- cerebral in, in his approach to match play. So they they're a joy to watch. I feel like in Roger's case is a little different. He just was he had this style from a young age. and yes, he improved his backhand. Started, especially from 17 on. It, it started with going to the bigger racket in 14, but from 17 on, we saw Roger coming over that back end so much more confident. But that was more of a technical thing, you yeah. know. That, and the other two, it's, it's more tactical, I think. But, there, but it's, it's great to see that kind of a change, coming, to see players in their 30s doing, doing what all three of them have, but particularly in the recent years, what Novak and Rafa have done.
0: Yeah. Remarkable. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, also Djokovic has become such a good spot server. It's, it's basically federer risk at this point. Yeah,
1: very similar. Very similar. Roger could probably go a little bigger at times, slightly bigger, but not a great deal. And, yeah, I mean, when Novak is serving his best like that, you know, he'll, he'll put it on a dime. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that, was, that also helps as he's gliding through these service games that he can get some free points. Well, The one that I love the most... he serves extremely well down the T in the ad court, you know, when he's on and he can go out wide over there, but the wide, and obviously down the T in the deuce court. But the one that I is devastating now is the slicer wide in the deuce court, which he, you'll look at that clock and you'll see 102, 103, 101. They're not, it's the spin. It's the spin. That's devilish. It gets around the outside of that ball and that it's just unstoppable because it's short and wide in the box. And it's just, Again, it's fun to watch him hit that particular serve.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Um, you you didn't mention Carlos Alcaraz, so I think we should we should talk about him because uh, you know obviously he was close to losing in the first round itself. I mean, there were a lot of question marks about his how he would play on grass, and it was quite fun to watch him play. Um, definitely, there were some doubts coming in. He hadn't played in Queens. He had uh, had a bit of a nagging elbow problem. And he was close to losing against Jan Leonard Struff in the first round. He was down two love in the fourth set tiebreak. And then he found something yeah. special and then won the fifth. Uh, and then
1: uh, that was a great, to... great pass on the run when he was down two love in that breaker. And let's give a let's be fair to Carlos Struff. Is a he that was one of the trickier draws you could get. Yeah. And then after that, Carlos played very well up to the center match. And then he just got thoroughly outplayed. That was one of the best matches I've ever seen center play.
0: Yeah. I would say that's the best match he's ever played in. Um, in a major yeah. Prisoner. like yeah. for me that was yeah that was he was it was for him not to get broken at all yeah. in that match yeah Save all seven break points
1: yeah and that's four sets and devastating to have a couple of match points in the third set tie break and not not seal them not put it away <laughs> then, and then come back and serve just as well in the fourth and get it done then against a kid this dangerous yeah that that was very well <clears> done on uh Sinner's part. And strangely enough, I'm not sure Djokovic wouldn't have had a slightly... It would have been fun to watch him play Alcaraz. And obviously, Sinner took back to five. But I think Carlos is just... He needs a little more seasoning on the grass. I'm not worried about him. He needs a little more experience on it. But wait till he gets back on the hard courts over the summer. I mean, I still say he's going to be extremely dangerous at the US Open.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think think he's one of the top contenders there. I think uh, the only slight concern for me with Carlos is just his he's played sort of two poor sets in each of the slams matches that he's lost. And then it's sort of been a little bit tougher for him to come back from there. Um, just yeah. uh, you know, the Berrettini one and the Zverev one, and then now right. this. So I guess, yeah, true. It's it's but, true. but he's very young. He's it's, you know, it'll come.
1: Yes. And I could see him getting on a pretty good role at the U S open though, too, and maybe yeah. avoiding those longer struggles. Who knows how, what the draw is like, but most likely Novak's not going to be there. And, and we'll see if Zarin <laughs> is ready. And but this is could be a, 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 a quite a, a big opening for Alcaraz if he can take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then for for Sinner to have never won a match on grass, and then you know, O and four, I guess coming in, and then uh, to have had the run that he did here, I just love the way he sli- he's able to slide on it, his footwork, his balance. Uh, you know, he's one of the better returners, and he's got a great running forehand as well. So he, I think one of the best in the game. So it's
1: oh, it was great that to like. Yeah, it was terrific that day. And, you know, his back end is very solid, too. So, know we know how great he is. That was a big step in the right direction. I think he also knows what we, uh, that what we were saying earlier is true, that this was really more about Djokovic collecting himself and stringing together three magnificent sets in a row than it was anything about a, a sinner collapse. It was really a Djokovic escalation in play.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then, of course, I think, uh, I think we should also mention uh, some of the names that were missing in this tournament. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not talking about the Russian and Belarusian players, but, you know, names like Marin Cilic, Matteo Berrettini. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Batista, good as well, uh, getting bouts of COVID. And then uh, yeah, I, I felt like it was unfortunate for Berrettini having won two uh, titles on the grass and looking so good after hand surgery to uh, not, not playing this event is, uh, is unfortunate because I think he would have yeah. fared really well.
1: And almost equally bad luck for Chilich coming off the French semi and knowing that he, the finals here against Roger in 17. (laughs) And uh, that was very hard for him, I'm sure. uh, I was worried. And then you mentioned Baptiste Agud and he's a former semifinalist as well. I think it was worrisome at that stage when there was those three big, pretty big names there. I thought, oh, my God, I hope we're not going to see this draw decimate. And fortunately, from that point on, things sort of calmed down a bit. Right. Uh, was, and we didn't get a massive withdrawals, but it was it, it was looking a, a bit uh, – we all were a bit concerned when the when those withdrawals occurred.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then obviously you also had, um, you know, Herkacz getting a really tough draw in. Hunter yeah. and Davidovich for Keita. That was a tipsy-topsy match. And then obviously you had um, – Felix Orgelia's team, I think he got one of the worst draws in Maxim Cressy you could possibly have.
1: He did. Yeah, no, Cressy is a nightmare to play. And Felix, of course, had done so well there a year ago to beat Zarev. And I I think it was too bad that uh that he couldn't get out of the Cressy match. He might have gone a long way. Yeah. But uh but there wasn't wasn't much he could do on that particular day to stop Cressy.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um another American that did really well at this tournament is um he's not talked about as much as Sebastian Corda and Jensen Brooksby, but um, you know, I've seen his, I've actually ha- had the pleasure of knowing him personally because um, he, he went to the same tennis Academy as I did when, I, when we were both younger and uh, from San Diego he is. And he's uh, you know, I've watched his rise very carefully and he's, he's done really well on, um, on all surfaces now and he's improved on the clay and he's become a, you know, he's, I like the way he's headed and he's cool, calm, and collected. And that's Brendan Nakashima. And he got over yeah. to the fourth round. He beat Dennis Shapovalov in the second round and uh, pushed Kyrios to five sets. So I think uh, he can do some damage in the hardcore swing.
1: It was, I felt sorry for him. He's Ooh. a very understated guy, nice guy. I've had a couple of interviews with him myself and he's very likable, very congenial. And that was unfortunate for him because Nick was having an issue with his shoulder that day and through much yeah. of that. Serving than the one thirties, twenties like we normally see from him. So there was an opportunity there for Nakashima, but Nick, of course, was was singularly uh, focused this tournament, and he pulled it out. But I did like the I did like the way Nakashima played in this tournament. I hope it's going to carry over into the summer on the hard courts where he could do a lot of damage from from now right through the U.S. Open. Yeah,
0: totally. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how all the Americans do because uh, obviously Corda wasn't able to play here as well, and he's uh, right. he would have liked his chances as well to go make make a deep run. But
1: yeah, I'm worried about Corda. These little things, these little absences—I mean, niggling injuries—they're not necessarily serious injuries, but we we haven't seen him be able to avoid it for long periods over these last two years. At a time when he might have grown more as a player, and there's plenty of time, but I. I he seems to me to be hurt a bit more than any of those other younger generation Americans. So they, I think they need to, that needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, But yeah. And then, and then obviously, um, you know, the not having Russian and Belarusian players is, is quite unfortunate and, you know, there was a lot of talk about that before the, before the tournament began and including, you know, even a month or two ago, but I guess for me, what's more, Uh, When I look at this tournament and I look at the rankings now on Monday, I think it's just just a total injustice to me just because now the rankings are totally irreflective of what we're seeing in terms of form and just, it just doesn't sit right with me. I just feel like why did the ATP and the WTA sort of, you know, hurt their players in this way? There was really no no need for it. I see their need to uh, sort of prove to Wimbledon and the rest of the slams and you know, show that okay, you know, you can't just take a decision sort of unilaterally. I guess they were pressured a bit by the British government, but uh I don't see really how this helps helps the situation one bit. And on top no. of that, they didn't even freeze the points from last year. So it's like none of them ever played the event to begin with. So it's it's just
1: no, it, it was a horrendous decision. <clears throat> uh, was the, Gaudenzi on the men's side with the ATP and uh, as a former player, Steve Simon, an enormously popular individual running the WTA, did took that brave and impressive stance on Peng, uh, on Peng Shui. I mean, wait a minute, what did I say? <laughs> Her name is always tricky, but you know what? This decision made no sense whatsoever uh, because of what you just said. I mean, you're harming your own constituency. And the lunacy of Djokovic going down from three to seven and losing 2,000 points. Why? So the idea was to strike back at Wimbledon. Well, first of all, I disagree with that posture to begin with because Wimbledon had a tough decision to make. And I know the two associations are claiming this is against their rules, that the players should have been allowed in based on the rules. But this was a a unique world situation in world history, unique moment. In world history, and I think Wimbledon had to weigh a lot of things, but in the end, they 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 made a choice that I had found myself agreeing with. Yeah. Some agree with it, but you certainly could see the complexity of the decision. So I think it would have been enough, Vanch, for the WTA and the ATP to just make a statement saying we vehemently disagree with this. We want to go on record: this is wrong. Our players, all of these players, should have been allowed in, but they could have just left it at that. But by then saying we're taking the points away, Wimbledon didn't suffer for that. Nobody, That's not going to matter historically to Wimbledon. It didn't matter as the tournament unfolded. It matters to those players that they lose out on those points. And in the end, I I just find it inexplicable. And I did at the time. And sure, you want to take a stance, but this was not the right stance to take, in my view. And I, I think they may come to regret it. And it skewed the rankings, too. That's the problem. We've been able to look at them as we, uh, until now, as a pretty accurate reflection of where these players belong and on the worldwide scales. But th- this just messes up everything. And uh, it, not just for Djokovic, for, but for others. And players c- couldn't defend points, they couldn't earn new points. It's just, it's, it's going to make those rankings open to question in a way that they didn't have to be.
0: Yeah, totally agree. I, I guess we should just look at the race and just, <laughs> I, I, yep. I tried to just look at the race and just see sort of, uh, like, you know, kind of add the points, like uh, had had they been awarded, but it's just, even that is just, it's just not accurate anymore. So I guess, um, yeah, it was it was unfortunate, but uh, not much you can really do there.
1: <laughs> no, not much you can do, but I wish they would have, recon- I wish they would have waited or just reconsidered at the time and said, you know yeah. what, this is not, this doesn't make sense to to punish our own players because that's yeah. again what it was, and it's a shame
0: yeah I, I guess what it did reaffirm again is just how special Wimbledon is because uh you know m- most of all the players were there, the ones that you know pretty much uh, you know apart from i guess naomi Osaka who uh who who, who mentioned before the that the points was was sort of a factor, and she did have an injury as well. So I guess, uh, you know, that was also, uh, right. that initially, was also part
1: of it. But. Yeah, initially she mentioned the points, then it was the injury. But that was very disappointing to me when she did that as a four-time major champion, to not understand that that, that was mm-hmm. not – you don't want to do that to the, to the sports centerpiece event. Start saying, as she did initially, well, if there are not any points – I'm not sure I'm, I want to play. That's, that's That didn't look good. I don't think she thought it through, frankly, at the yeah. time. It was something it was sort of a quick gut reaction and uh, one that I would suspect she regretted later on.
0: Yeah, I agree. And uh, it just reaffirmed again how special Wimbledon is and, you know, the prize money and the prestige sort of trumps the no ranking points. So I guess that was uh, uh, that was one thing I took away from this. But I guess let's switch gears a bit and talk about the women's, uh, women's side a bit. Uh, obviously, you know, Coming in, it was Iga Svjantek and her winning streak. and uh, But it was clear throughout the first three rounds, especially first couple of rounds, that uh, you know, Iga Svjantek was probably not going to win Wimbledon, just the way things were going. And it was just going to be extremely tough for her to adapt this quick on the grass. And it was a bit too much to ask, right?
1: Yeah, it was. It was. And so I, I felt sorry for her, the dominant <laughs> force, winning streak, sweep right through the French, seemingly poised and ready to, to maybe do it here. But then when she lost, yeah, I thought, okay, uh, Ansh Jabor is such a great opportunity for her. And she goes to the final. And <clears throat> I thought she was going to win that final, frankly, the way she started the first. So what were your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I, I thought so as well. I thought with her with her ability to keep Rebecca our know, guessing and her drop shots and her the way she can change pace and sneaky good spot server. And I just thought that I was looking at the matchup and I just felt like this was going to be a good one. But at the same time, I did sort of see that there was going to be some potential for a for a let up from her, or maybe some poor decision making, like we saw in the beginning of the second set, and and then Ribikina R- R- just really found her groove from the back of the court and just oh, totally. you know, served, served tremendously. And she moves very well for her height at six feet. And you know we've we've known about her for a while, but she really sort of really put it together and just was too good in the end. So
1: she was no, she she was overpowering. The first serve is terrific, and she she gets it. She moves forward well. Yeah. And most, most of the other women players who were great side to side, she really moved forward extremely well.
0: I was impressed with how she adapted mid-match because in the, in the first set, you know, it was bringing her up to the net was a good tactic. But then afterwards, yeah. she really got down lower and started uh, committing to it and, you know, hit some really good volleys. And especially the way she got out of that 3-2, the 40 game in the third set. Well, that, that was, just, the, that was that the match was, right there.
1: It was reflective of Ons just, you know, uh, she had, 11 break points and only converted two. And those are both in the first set. She never broke her again. And Anz really suffered from the inability to convert more of those break points. And it was interesting because she was so, Jabur was so exuberant in the first set. There was a lot of sort of piss pumping and excitement and the sense that she thought she could win it. And by breaking again at the end of the first set, she had a chance to start serving in the second it was all going her way. But in the end, she was definitely outplayed those last two sets. Uh, I think as a personality and a you know, that she, she could become such an incredibly uh, important force in women's tennis and, and may yet, but I thought it was going to start here. I thought this was going to be where she secured her first major. It was not to be and uh, not entirely her fault either.
0: Yeah, for sure. I just love the way she carries herself. I love how uh, how, how how much she takes that responsibility of playing for her nation and Uh, you know, doing it for Arab women and Muslim women and first African. And it's just, uh, it's so great. And she deserves to be number two in the world because she's shown remarkable consistency all the way from Charleston to basically here. And uh, the first round loss at the French Open was tough, but I love the way how she bounced back from it. And I get the feeling that she's going to win one major. I I, I really do.
1: Well, I think so. I think so. I just thought, you know, she'd sort of set it up beautifully that the way she played that first set, but hopefully, she there's something she learned. So, I don't think she's going to be moping around for weeks on end after this. It was still a, an important step in her evolution to in that Wimbledon final. And we'll yeah. see a lot of great tennis ahead from her
0: for sure. I have to say, I was uh, I was uh, expecting Simona Hall to do better. Mm-hmm. I was uh, you know, I she, she did very well to get to the semis and she had some good form coming in, but yeah, I was not impressed with her in that semi final nine double faults and. Uh, you know, 38 percent points one on second serve, and just it just wasn't a great day for her. What did you think? Well,
1: when you serve nine doubles, your percentage you're gonna have a hard time having a better percentage of second serve points one because that's yeah. a lot of. But yes, I was disappointed by that too. I think she felt the pressure of uh, you know, she was getting pressured so much on that second serve that uh, that may have cause some of those doubles the sense that she better get it in with depth. but you're right it was it was it was she played better against anna Samova. that was that was a nice performance and she wasn't able yeah. to sustain form in the semis and I, I i i i did think heading into the semis she might win the tournament so from that standpoint i'm in agreement with you that it, it ended up being a slightly disappointing uh, performance
0: yeah totally and then um Obviously you had some good stories with Tatiana Maria and Marie Buscova and uh, you know, Maria Sakari, I guess uh, that was probably maybe a match she would, she would want back in the third round and same with, same with us in the fourth round as well. But um, I guess it was also great to see the Williams sisters back in action. Uh, You'd, you know, I was hoping, you know, hopefully I I just hope they play a little bit more before the U S open and not just go in completely cold when in Serena's case, because I did feel like had she gone through um, Harmony 10, she could have gone on a on a nice run uh, in our section of the draw.
1: Yeah, it's entirely possible. Uh, I <laughs> just find it hard to understand, though, that if you're going to go over to Eastbourne and you haven't played for a year, you just play the doubles in Eastbourne? It just didn't make any sense to me. She could have potentially gotten a few matches in there that might have made the difference at Wimbledon to getting her much deeper into the draw. And then her comp- press comments afterwards, Vaj was she was a little ambivalent you didn't you didn't sense that she was like now going to go all out for the u.s open she sounded Mm -hmm. a little certain about her plans yeah and at this stage she's got to have got there needs to be a plan because you know you're not going to play till 45 so uh, you know this this next year is pretty crucial for her and she showed some pretty impressive form in that loss at times and even had i think a four love she saved a match point and after she'd serve for the match Then she saves a match point. Then she's four love up in the super in the tie break at the end, but couldn't close it out. And uh, I, I hope that I'm hoping that we see a couple of hardcore tournaments and then the U S open that she gets serious enough to do that much so that she could come to the open with at least some chance of getting into the latter stages. Cause if she just pops into the U S open as her first appearance since Wimbledon, I, I don't think it augurs well for her.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that. And she showed some good things in that match. Um, physically, I thought she held up pretty well over three hours. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and you got the feeling that if she had played maybe a slightly more orthodox opponent, I guess, you know, and more of a yeah. power player, let's say, you know, it, it might've worked out well for her, but I agree. She needs the reps and she needs some more match play coming in because it's unreasonable to expect to just, uh, you know, show up and, and, and go really far. So. yeah, Absolutely. Yeah no overall I thought across the board it was a it was a great it was a great fortnight and some memorable matches in there and you know will it'll go down in the history books uh, definitely as a Wimbledon to to remember despite all the storylines coming in
1: yeah and you had this uh, that's true and <coughs> you had the same inimitable Wimbledon scenes at the end where the the champions go out with their trophy and the the crowds are down below cheering them on vociferously and warmly and uh there's the the pageantry of wimbledon is really still something to behold and i i don't think people are going to look back on this tournament any differently there'll be no asterisks and they'll look at this one the same way they do every other wimbledon that this is the preeminent event in tennis without without question
0: yeah it really has a special aura to it and you can you can see it um in the players and in the, the, the way the tournament, the 100 year anniversary of the center court was, was great as well. Oh, that, I was
1: that. By the way, it was a really, we should touch just briefly at the end here. That was a nice ceremony, <laughs> it was terrific that Federer flew in that added a lot of luster to it. And he was interviewed and yeah. that you had, uh, you know, uh, so many great champions there. <clears throat> Mark Avedalova had COVID, so could not walk out on the court, which was a shame, <laughs> but you still had, still had Chris Everett and you still had, So many great players uh, uh, appearing there, and uh, you know there were some that were missing, no doubt about it. And Serena was apparently still in England and didn't attend. And Sampras, Agassi, Connors, the great Americans were not there. So there were that there was it was unfortunate that more did not return, but those that did made it into a the monumental occasion it was, and the ceremony was staged as as elegantly and meticulously as you would expect uh, that's just that's just the way Wimbledon runs things so it was really nice and Sue Barker and Mackinac out there and Mackinac got to get his own applause amidst announcing everybody else but he actually did a very nice job of announcing the others great enthusiasm and energy and so I enjoyed that ceremony very much that was actually the, uh, the on the day that I arrived on that middle Sunday
0: yeah, for sure, it, it made it really special. And let's hope, uh, let's hope Roger can play one more, like he said in the, in yeah, in in the interview. It's gonna be gonna be tough, but it. Um, yeah, and also we'll you know, I
1: should add that you know not only having Roger but to have N- Novak and Rafa participate as well was very nice. And yeah, there's an amusing moment where we don't know what was really said, but where the, you see the picture later on where Novak was whispering yeah. something to Roger, and Roger was breaking into a grin. That was nice to see too because. They're such fierce competitors, but here was a lighter moment and they, they were enjoying it.
0: Yeah, for sure. It was great to see that. And uh, yeah, Steve, this has been awesome. Uh, I, love, uh, I love this time of the year because it means we can do, a, we can do two recaps within, within one month. So it's, it's great. And I look forward to the, to the U.S. Open and uh, to our chats afterwards.
1: So do I, Vance. You take care of yourself and, and we'll speak again uh, after the Open. Looking forward to that very much.
0: Yep. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we'll we'll chat later. Thanks. Thanks Thanks so much for your time.
1: Okay. Thanks for having me, Bunch. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.